This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. No Robbie tonight, so we've uh, called on the subs, and it's Matt Fortune who stuck his arm up to say, yep, do it. Clamber off the bench and help you. Put me in, coach. Yeah, put you in, and that's what we've done. How are you, Matt? Yeah, very good, Chris. It's been a while. It's been like six months, I think, since you've... been a bit. I missed much? You've missed... (laughs) You've missed, yeah, just... Yeah, it's been a weird six months. I've sort of kept my head out of the news. I don't know if there was... uh... (laughs) I know you've not kept your... You've certainly not kept your head out of Arsenal Football Club's news because you were messaging furiously on the show. (laughs) You are one of our diligent texters, is what you are. Mm. You were... Well, I think you were furious. I want to get to this because I know it's a story that's a bit old, but Robbie and I perhaps didn't pay enough attention with this story. I know it made headlines in the UK... Arsenal Football Club, uh, because it is a club, of course, close to your heart. It is a club that you worked for a number of years back as well on the website. It is a club that you followed from a young age. Making 55 individuals redundant at a time where 12.5%, I think, the players took pay cuts during COVID-19. And whilst I know it has been trying for many industries and businesses, where did you sit in all of that? Mm. Uh, Listen, first things first, I thought it was communicated terribly. Terribly, yeah. It was released at a terrible time. We were three days after adding silverware to what was a disastrous season. The mood in the camp was great, considering it was our worst performance in the best part of 20-odd years. And then to announce it like that was just... It just smacked of a lack of care for the fans. And ultimately, that's what a football club is there to serve, is, is its fans. On the decision itself, I think... It's very easy to look at that, and you did it yourself there, and, and understandably so. Why get rid of 55, uh, 55 people when there's one guy taking three hundred and fifty grand a week and not playing? It's a very, it's a very easy uh, calculation to make. to make. Absolutely, but think about this, right? Arsenal's match day revenue is is ninety six million per match, right? It's, it's incredible. Ninety six million dirhams. Think of that, uh, pounds. Think of the think of all of the corporate level of and all of the spend. It's in London. It's the most expensive season tickets. All all of that wrapped into that. One of the most expensive in the world. If you don't have that money coming in for six months minimum, let's say, you know, whatever it might be, that's a big hole in your income that's coming in there. That's mm. a real problem. And if say seventy percent of the people that you've let go are match day staff. The corporate hospital, you're not just talking about people that are there, the security guards or people like that, where obviously it's it's a it's a it's terrible that people are losing their jobs. It's just you have to be wary of the fact that you can't plug that gap by getting rid of a player who actually does generate value through transfers and everything else. I do think ultimately decisions had to be made. Unfortunately, Arsenal just timed it terribly. And and, and what I think they've lacked, and I, I was listening to a an Arsenal podcast that made a wonderful point the other day. Arsenal's one of those clubs that is right in the heart of the community. Yeah, it's in London, of course. It does phenomenal work out there in the community. Where was the trade-off? Where was the, look, we've got to make these cuts because our rent's expensive, we're paying back a stadium, we're losing that money, we're going out into the community to do something else. We're giving the money that we were going to spend on press box meals out to the community, doing something. It's a PR disaster. I think Arsenal have been a walking PR disaster off the pitch for three, four, five, six years and more, and they just don't manage messaging properly. Here's where I, I take umbrage with that. And listen, you're absolutely right. They are, at the end of the day, I hate to say it, but they're a business. They're a football club, but they are a business. Where I really take issue with this is we saw, I think it was, was it Liverpool? At the early stages of COVID-19 that made the decision. It may have been Spurs, in actual fact. They made the decision. It was Liverpool. We're going to furlough staff. Spurs as well. And there was a huge backlash. They railed that back and they said, okay, no, we're going to suspend that. Mm. We will take these people back. If Arsenal were going to make 55 redundant, why didn't they? 
furlough first. Because my issue with this is, and it's been pointed out, Stan Kroenke, the owner of that football club, is worth 4.1 yeah. billion US and, dollars. And, 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 and often not mentions the fact he's married to the heiress of the Walmart finances. <laughs> and you can know that. <laughs> it's not, he's not short of a bubble too. Listen, on that particular point, the, re- the reason the furloughing thing was so uh, frowned against is furlough wasn't there to bail out big business. Absolutely not. If decisions had to be made, they should have been made sooner. You're absolutely right. But furloughing was there. And the reason that it was rained back, it was for people like my mum's business who employ four or five people that couldn't operate yeah. during those times. That's what it was there for. And that's why that was a PR disaster from both Liverpool and Spurs that both have to rain, uh, had to rein it back in. So, of course, 55 Arsenal employees or former Arsenal employees. Now, I mean, we don't know their circumstance, but I would imagine day after that, they're signing on. In the UK, so they're yeah. now. Listen, it's 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 a it's. Uh, I sort of feel a bit bad trying to defend the club on having to do it because these are people's livelihoods at stake. But one thing, story that did come out of it, again at the same time, and it hasn't been confirmed that some of those people let go were part of the recruitment team. There was the whole story about Francis Cajigo yeah. and another another uh, a number of other scouts. Sorry, that's a whole other debate because. A whole new football structure has come into that club. A new director of football in Edu, other members in significant board positions have come in. Doesn't like the way things are going. People mm. jumped to the defence. And again, I, I was sort of coming at this from not a massively knowledgeable position, but people jumped on the Francis Cajago thing and said, oh, he found Cesc Fabregas. He found Hector Bellerin. Yeah, OK, they were in the Barcelona Academy. I yeah. mean, it's not... Listen, <laughs> I'm sure they were probably quite worthy of, of, of scouting yeah. at that point. Listen, he found Gabriel uh, Martinelli, who was in second or third division in Brazil. Fine, I'll give you that. But ultimately, if the club wants to go in a direction where networks of agents and, uh, again, another debate for maybe a, a two-hour special on whether or not that's a good idea, the direction the club wants to go in, if you want to let rid of your scouting network, that doesn't necessarily have a great track record. You look at the young players that have come through from the Arsenal mm. Academy recently, they're all kids that were there since they were 9, 10 years old. And not only that, it, I guess they are victims of timing because uh, an awful lot, there is a bit of a buzz in the footballing landscape right now that... The, the scouting, it is evolving, it is changing. The old idea of travelling around the globe to watch a player live, it's all about data analysis now. Absolutely. A lot of that is changing. So you might well, you're absolutely right to say that, you might well see over the course of the next 12, 18 months, teams restructuring their recruitment departments to fit in with the modern day world. The, the days of, oh, I've seen this kid playing on a pitch in northern Scotland, he's worth a punt at Aberdeen. Yeah, talking they, about you, Chris. Naturally, they, they're long gone. My <laughs> Those friend. days are long, long gone. It's tapping into a little bit of data. Oh, look at that kid; he can kick the ball this far. He can yeah. pass completion that way. You don't need that. You don't need people on the ground out there. What you need, and this is my my genuine feeling, is you need a network of people that know the people that can get you ahead of the queue for everybody else. Because gone are the days where only the rich, rich clubs can invest in that sort of data analysis. Blimey, I could have an account with Opta if I wanted to now for probably a bit of pocket money. <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm going to sign Meza Ozil to play for my Dubai Amateur Football League no. team, but you could. So what you need is that network. I want to welcome a very special guest into the conversation now. This is a man that I caught up with at length. It was an interview I took great delight in playing out to you guys earlier this year. A man that's played 84 times for his country in the world of rugby union. He is a man still playing, still going strong for his sins. He is a Liverpool Football Club fan as well. We're not going to give him time of day to talk about Liverpool. He is also part of that brilliant podcast team, Rugby Union Podcast, for the BBC Radio 5 Live, alongside Uge Monye and Chris Jones. It's the one and only Danny Cairn. He's live on the line now. Danny, a very good afternoon as it is over there in the UK. 
Thanks for having me, Chris. How are you getting on, mate? Yeah, we're all right, mate. It's a bit hot. We are surviving as well, which is the good news. And, of course, with this pandemic that is still ongoing, it's strange times, Danny. Strange times for you over there? Really strange, especially last week when it was Dubai weather style. I got in my car, 40 degrees. So, yeah, I ordered an aircon unit. It arrived yesterday and it was tipping it down with rain. So, yeah, a week too late. But, yeah, we're uh, we're all right over here. It's back to a sort of normal UK weather, loads of rain. Sun comes out for about 10 minutes. So, yeah, we're back to normal. Yeah, you were telling me today as well, training for you. And we do appreciate you taking the time for this little chat, Danny. You had training today. So give us the kind of long and short. What is the new norm for you boys playing at the elite level over at Harlequins, what is training like in this COVID times? Yeah, it's, um, I'd say the word strange is is the way. Uh, I think definitely to start with, you know, we're, we're having tests at least once a week. So uh, having a swab up your nose and down your throat, um, which is, isn't a nice way to start a Monday morning. But, you know, we're, we're getting on board with that. And at the moment, as a club, we've had, we've had zero tests, which is great. Um, and then training kind of is, is, is very normal in the way that, you know, we're still getting flogged. Uh, training is always hard. <laughs> I think it's probably the in-between the sessions where, you know, we normally spend an awful lot of time together as a group chatting and sort of socialising and relaxing in between sessions. The, these days, we're not allowed to do that. So it's turn up at training, get yourself ready. We have a meeting inside with each other, but we're all wearing masks inside. Uh, we go out and train and then you get a packed lunch and you go home, you know, no showers at the training ground. So a lot of the time sort of at the training ground has been cut down a bit. Um, training, like I say, very much the same. Obviously, the lads played the first game on Friday night against Sale, which great to get a win. But God, it was strange having no fans there. You, you could hear the great thing. You could hear everything on the pitch. Yeah. So I think from a perspective of the TV, you probably heard a lot more information that you normally would. But Look, we we love to entertain crowds. We we need the crowd. I think rugby is a sport that that needs that fan interaction to just get you going a little bit more. So that was strange, but we've got to get on board with it. I can't see any fans coming in anytime soon, unfortunately. So um, we just got to get on board with it. Give us an insight there, if you can, Danny, because it's a valid point. The, the fact that you boys smashing one another for eighty minutes. I mean. Cheapers, it's absolutely brutal is what it is. Did the coaching staff change up their approach to get you boys G'd up with the fact that you didn't have fans in the stadium, you didn't have fans G'ing you up during the match? Did anything change in that regard? Uh, it's something we definitely talked about at Harlequins. Um, an ownership was definitely put on the, the leaders in the group to, to keep everyone on track because I think without the fans, it'd be very easy to sort of drift away and feel like you're just in a training session. Um I think what Paul Gustav does at Harlequins is he makes the training sessions as intense, sorry, more intense than a match. So we're training even harder. So when it got to the game, the lads were definitely prepared. They'd been they'd done enough contact sort of four or five weeks before. They'd been smashing each other. Um, we know we played a trial game against each other, which I think got everyone in the mood. And you know, if you can if you can smash your mates. Um, you know, with no fans watching, you can definitely smash some lads from sale. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the boys, the boys definitely ripped in on Friday night and, and, and got the got the result that we deserved, which is great. Yeah, and of course, I want to get to a story that that I know you and I'm sure the boys have been discussing at training over the last couple of days. Your former skipper at England, Dylan Hartley. Of course, he's uh, hung up the boots. Soon to be published autobiography. It's getting a lot of mm. uh, airtime and a lot of column inches back in the UK. It's entitled The Heart, and that is a free plug to said autobiography. 
biography. And he's had one or two interesting things to say, Danny. It'd be quite interesting to get your kind of thoughts and kind of general feelings on them. He's kind of had a, not a pop per se. He just says that, and you've said the word there, flogged. You boys, it's important you put in the hard yards and training because it's to ensure that you're flying out the gates on a Saturday and that you boys aren't getting injured. But he's used an interesting phrase, crash dummies. He's felt a little bit like that is what kind of pro players today are, are like a little bit. Your experience of that? Look, yeah, um, I think Dylan has been really open and honest there. Um, maybe he's trying to plug his book. I don't know, Chris. Maybe <laughs> giving, giving the fans a little bit of a taster. Um, look, I, I, I know firsthand, look, Dylan's a good mate. I know how hard he got he worked by Eddie. Look, everyone, got, everyone gets worked hard by Eddie because that's the standards he demands and he's, he's so thorough with everything that he does that he leaves no stone unturned. And, and the captain... At the time, Dylan, you know, took a lot of the brunt of that. He was almost like Eddie's second in command, and the way Eddie was, Dylan needed to get on board with that. So, so Dylan was, you know, I, I know from, from seeing him, you know, post England camps, he was exhausted, absolutely exhausted, mentally drained. But that was, you know, kind of came with the territory. You, you, you know, you're England captain. It's a, it's an incredibly special achievement, and one that I'll never, I'll never experience. But. Yeah, with that came a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny and, and Eddie demanded an awful lot of the players, but especially of the captain. So I can see kind of where Dylan Dylan's coming from from that and also the fact that he said, you know, he's the best coach he ever worked with, that mm. we were incredibly successful under the Dylan and Eddie combination. Um, so it, bits of it work, but I, I, I do get on board with what he says. You, you are in a way, you are crash test dummies because... The fact in England we've got so many good players, so much depth, so much strength and depth that, you know, if, if players get worked really hard and, and they break, the reality of it is there's two or three more that can fill, that, fill those roles. And, you know, it, it happened to me, it happened to Dylan, it happened to Mike Brown, Chris Robshaw, kind of, you know, younger versions of us. Well, for me, he wasn't younger. He was a 33-year-old Kiwi, uh, which is another case. But for, for, for other people, um, you know, that did happen. Younger players that maybe can, can give a little bit more energy every day that got the nod for that World Cup. And that's probably where the frustration, I think, for Dylan has, has bore down. Uh, Danny, Matt here. Um, good to speak to you. I, I wanted to know, you, you touched on it there a little bit about younger guys having a li- little bit more oomph, maybe. They haven't been put through the ringer quite as much as the, the slightly older gentleman. Educate me uh, and, and our listeners. Is there is there a way of being? I think of someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, right? When he breaks in football, when he breaks breaks through, he's just lightning quick up and down the wing, constantly, constantly terrorizing people. As his career's progressed, he's just been in the right place at the right yeah. time, doing wonderful things and working a heck of a lot less hard than he might do. In rugby, is there a means of changing your approach the older you get a little bit more of a quarterback position maybe where you're you're just there and around is there something that that maybe the older guys might be looking at doing as they as they progress in their careers yeah i think you look you definitely have to adapt your game i think you know with with cristiano ronaldo he i mean he's a freak he's a one of a kind not quite as good as messi chris that might hurt you to hear that <laughs> no you're absolutely right you're you're going to hear no no disagreement here on that front Okay, perfect. But he's not far off. I think. Look, he played in. He's played in some brilliant teams, and he's always had brilliant players around him. Um, I think in rugby, I guess that the toll on your body probably hits you a little bit harder. Um, you know, the amount of collisions and contacts, and the size of these guys coming through now that 
you know, especially for the big lads. Look, I'm I'm, I'm a small guy. I hide behind the forwards. Um, they do all my tackles for me. But <laughs> you can see why. You know, Dylan has run into brick wall after brick wall for for 15 years and done it at the very top top of the top of the game um, into some of the biggest people you could imagine. Um, it's hard to adapt your game to that. You know, where do you, how do you change that? As a, as a, as a forward, you have to run into brick walls. You have to win collisions. And I think you see the mould of sort of Sam Underhill, Tom Curry these days. You know, Chris Robshaw uh, had an unbelievable career for both England and Harlequins, but he he couldn't do what Tom Curry and Sam Underhill do every week now. You know, absolutely wreck themselves. You know, he does it in his way of going around and making 20 tackles. But what Tom Curry and Sam Underhill do these days is, for me, I can't see them lasting, you know, yeah. for 10 as many years as Chris Robshaw did, just the way the game's gone and the way the back row is now. You're going to get a lot more injuries um, because of what they're throwing their bodies into time after time. So I think it's definitely changing. I think you'll see a bit of a change in the guard with rugby because... It is getting incredibly more physical each year and I don't think players will have the longevity that perhaps someone like Chris Robshaw did. Last one from us, Danny. I know you're a busy boy and I'm conscious of time at this end as well. In terms of you, and I remember catching up with you, as I say, at the start of this year and you were enthused, you were looking in fine fettle. Does the the juices still flowing? Are, are you still committed? I know media and obviously the podcast that I've touched on, you do great work with Hugo and Chris on that front as well. Is... Are the juices still flowing or are you now, are the wheels slowly starting to, to grind to a halt a little bit? No, the juices are definitely, they're definitely flowing. Um, I still like to think I've got, I've got two or three years in me at the, at the top level and I don't want to bow out. Um, you know, I want to go out on, on top and I want to win something again, mate. It's been a, it's been a while. Obviously, the, the England stuff has, has kind of gone now, which, which I can accept and I'm just trying to really enjoy my, my time at Harlequins, really try and help a young team. We've got a lot of young lads and I'm really enjoying trying to help develop them. Um, and I think we've, real, we've got some really good potential for the next couple of years. So I hope I can be a part of that and contribute when I can. I'm hopefully fit next week and um, I, can, I can get playing and get doing what I love to do, which is, which is do my stuff on the pitch. Now, Danny, the only reason you agreed to come on tonight is because I did promise you 20 seconds to talk up Liverpool Football Club. Oh, They're finally champions. Go. Yeah, they are. Uh, you know, the, the one thing, it's incredible. Look, Liverpool were by far the best team uh, this season and, and, you know, thoroughly deserved it. I, I genuinely feel sorry for all the Liverpool fans that have gone week in, week out for the past 30 years and they haven't had a chance to, to see them lift the trophy. But hopefully, when all this madness is over, everyone can really recognise who is the greatest team in the world of football <laughs> and that's Liverpool Football Club I cannot believe I've allowed that to go out on the airwaves <laughs> off Dubai 103.8 listen Danny always a pleasure thank you so much for agreeing to pop on I've given you the 20 seconds on Liverpool best of luck for the season and uh, I say this and I mean this sincerely fingers crossed at the end of that season you've got a bit of silverware in your hands okay Let's hope so. Thanks for having me on, guys. Top stuff, the voice of Danny Kerr. Yes, for his sins, he is a Liverpool Football Club fan, Harlequins legend, 84 appearance for England, and that podcast as well. If you've not listened to it, if you love your rugby, the Rugby Union podcast, BBC Radio 5 Live, Ugo's brilliant, Chris is brilliant, and Danny Kerr, as you heard there, articulate, knows what he's talking about, well worth a listen. Lovely message has come in for you. Love having Matt on the sports segment, says Fad. Always gives another perspective, that he does. Get him on the show more regularly. Great to hear you three debate on sports. 
says Fad. Well, thanks very much, Fad. If it, actually, if Fad could reach out to my wife and ask her to come back with something more comforting than <laughs> I am listening, you're not talking, I think you just laughed, though. That's the sum total of what my wife thinks I'm adding oh, to the party. That, that so, is amazing. Uh, <laughs> Laura, if you are listening, it's my apologies. I commandeered it and Matt gets a bit nervous when we have guests on. I just take over, as Robbie often accuses me of doing as well. So I apologise for that and I apologise to you, Laura, for listening in. An opportunity for Matt to give us his thoughts. Inter Milan Shakhtar, did you stay up last night? Have you seen any highlights? I've seen highlights, but I didn't Inter stay up Milan. Oh my goodness. I stayed up. The missus wasn't too happy with that last night. 5 0. They ran a mock. They're going to win the Europa League. Yeah, I think they were going to win it before. Oh. Anyway. I, think you, I think you and I had a lengthy conversation on Friday about how they were going to beat Manchester United in the oh. final, were they not? Yeah, I do agree with that. Rom- <laughs> Romelu Lukaku, 33 goals this season. Yeah, it's remarkable. Oh. I mean, it, it's, it's a fine example of just finding the right fit for a yeah. player. I mean, listen, he was, he was sort of laughed out of Old Trafford, was he not? I he think. was. And, and, be, and because he does a lot of things not particularly well, he can't hold the ball up very well. If he's got to hold it for a long period of time, he's clever. He can use his weight well enough. Mm-hmm. But you build a, you build a team around a guy that can score that level of goals. What is he? Twenty six, twenty seven. Age wise, yeah, he's twenty six. I mean, he's still he's still got two or three years of that explosive Easily. power and finishing that he's got. I think, uh, and I think Conte's done exactly the right thing by by moulding a strategy around your most lethal player. You know what? You're absolutely spot on from a tactical point of view. The other thing as well, Conte's the right manager. For him, I would imagine Conte is the kind of guy, and again, I've not interviewed Antonio and I don't know this intimately, but he's the kind of guy that you would love to play for because he's, he's just a ball of energy on the touchline. He kind of reminds me of Mourinho back when Mourinho Early had a bit of energy. Mourinho. Yeah. You know, he just kicks every ball, he heads every ball, and Romelu Lukaku, he's lost a bit of weight, he's hungry, he's got Latouru Martinez, who I said it last night after watching it, I messaged my mate to say, Man City, that's who they'll go after. That's the new Aguero right there. He is a sensational little footballer. Barcelona have been linked. 22 years of age, the Argentine. And he looks a real a real gem of a player. And, and Inter Milan look powerful once again. And that bodes well for Italian football because I hate yeah. to say it, Juve fans, but I'm a bit bored of Serie A. Yeah. Nine Scherettos in a row. It needs a bit, it needs a bit more. It does. It needs, a cha- it needs a challenge. I think Conte let himself down, though, uh, domestically. I don't think that, that, yeah. that he maintained that challenge as long as people thought he would. Of course, his last, his last, his last job, sorry, first job, first season in his last job, yeah. completely revolutionised the formations that are played in the Premier League. Every team's playing a back three now. Exactly, and I, and I, and I, and again, I think what he did there. I mean, you look through that Chelsea team; it wasn't a particularly fashionable unit that he had there. Marcus Alonso, a Barca, a Bolton reject, yeah. Victor Moses, Crystal Palace reject, and rejects probably a bit harsh on the Palace front, but still not exactly players you thought. They're going to win me a Premier League. But what he does is he builds a team around the players that he has available to him at that yeah. time. And I think it's uh, I think it's exciting for Italian football. It's, it comes at a time as well when you look at the Champions League draw. Two teams from France, two teams from Germany. It's the first time, I think, since 1991, no semi-finalists from England, Spain or Italy. Yeah, the so big three, the traditional big three. If they're carrying the flag in the second tier European competition, it does bow very well indeed. Honest answer required. Do you stay up to watch... The UEFA Champions League semi-final this evening, PSG RB Leipzig. Uh, yeah, I do because only from a narrative perspective. I think I, I, I don't have a lot of time for PSG. They don't excite me, despite <laughs> I'm with you. Despite the players that they have, despite the regard in which I hold the manager, Leipzig. I'm not going to lie. I can't pretend to be the most knowledgeable about them. Uh, there's players that interest me there, but also Nagelsmann. I think I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I, 33. I, I read a story the other day. He he started. 
when he was injured at Augsburg, yeah, just doing the uh, the opposition reviews. And who was in charge? For Thomas Tuchel. I think Amazing. it's great. I mean, I love that when, when I don't have any emotion invested in the game, when you can find the little narrative there like that, I think it would be fabulous. Sean O'Shea, who is, uh, has been a regular contributor to us, of course, now up in Sweden with AIK Stockholm, he spent a week over at Leipzig before the arrival of Julian Nagelsmann and, and he spoke uh, very glowingly about the setup there and that's mm. Ralph Ranić, former Schalke boss who, who's had a real say and a big say in what goes on behind the scenes and Nagelsmann now revolutionising the game apparently and I've only heard this that he was one of the first managers they've got a massive Barasti style size screen on the training uh, ground he'll stop the training yeah. to review <laughs> what's been going on I mean he is someone who is revolutionising the game 33 years of age if he was to win it needless to say it would be a heck of a story beating PSG and potentially Bayern Munich in the final bigger than uh, bigger than Porto 04 yeah oh I tell you great debate we'll put that one out there in 4001 <laughs> if Leipzig win this Champions League is it bigger does it come use Porto does it come with an ast- a big asterisk because of the nature of the quarterfinals semi-finals and the final oh no can't be disrespectful. No, I'm not to being. The no, no, no. As a, genu- as a genuine, listen. Home and away football is 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 wildly different. And Fair. I think when you when you when you rob the whether or not you're robbing it. I mean, there's some people that have actually. I've seen someone say all we needed was a global pandemic to realise what would make the Champions League more interesting. Personally, I don't agree. I'm one of the few that is a massive advocate for away goals. I think it changes how you approach games. I think it's fascinating. It just adds that other layer of narrative to it. So going back to the point, would it be bigger than the Mourinho's Porto, Porto in 04? I'd have to argue not just because of the nature of how it was won six, 16 years ago, goodness me. Someone's been in touch, Matthew, disagreeing with the assertion that Porto is a bit more impressive if RB Leipzig do go on to win the UEFA Champions League this season. Definitely a bigger achievement, says one, because, of course, there is a club that was only established, hmm. quote-unquote, and the reason I do that is because, of course, Red Bull bought over yeah. an old fourth-tier German club that were only established 11 years ago. Yeah, I, listen... It, Totally fair point. Both are, are excellent achievements. Much as it pains me to give any credit to Jose Mourinho yeah. for anything ever <laughs> since then. Um, yeah, I would counter it by suggesting that that playing in the German football pyramid is probably more beneficial to a club than playing in the Portuguese yeah. league. Um, that's based not really on a great deal, but I would just suggest that the higher level of competition mm. primes you slightly better yeah, agree. Um, than it would do in Portugal. It's in both incredible achievements. I would very much love to throw an Arsenal Champions League win in there, but you can't. I can't. So. Sorry, Arsenal fans. He can't do that. 2006 still rankles with mm. Mr. Fortune as we debated and actually almost came to blows a few weeks back. But that's a story for another day. Mubashir Usmani, he is the General Secretary for the Emirates Cricket Board. Now, he joined the gang on Dubai Eye on one. I've got to ask, uh, I was about to call you Robbie there. It's not Rob, it's Matt. Uh, excited about the IPL? Yeah, I think so. I think incredible. For, for, for a great number of reasons. I think it's a massively significant coup for, for the country to be able to stage that. I think if you look at the, the global situation now to be in a position because of how we've managed what has been going on to even suggest, regardless of whether a fan's in now, how big it is, whatever it operates, to even be able to put that on and be in a position to suggest it I think is massively significant it's a global event it's a hugely followed hugely popular event obviously in India but also here not just with the Indian expats but with Western expats cricket fans anywhere sports fans anywhere I think it's uh, I think it's really exciting yeah I'm with you on that September 19th eight franchisees will be flying in uh, for it of course the likes of Steve Smith David Warner Ben Stokes it is a litany of Virat Kohli a litany of the biggest names in the game will be here it's played all 
the way through to November the 10th. Now, as I say, Mubashir Uzmani, he joined the gang a little earlier today. The questions were put to him thick and fast. Interesting answers as well to a few of these. And listen, let's kick this off. Let's hear from Mubashir now because, well, Tom Ucker it was that was guiding the steady hand of this interview. What will the tournament look like? That is, I guess, the million-dollar question because what can we as cricket fans expect? Million-dollar question. Will fans be allowed in? Right now, uh, BCCI, ECB, and we are in talks with uh, authorities in UAE to uh, to pro- approve a protocol and plan where we can definitely uh, seek approval on allowing fans into the venues and giving the experience of uh, this pre- prestigious event, which is actually a kind of one-time event for us. As it's not, uh, it's an event which is hosted in India and it's an Indian product. So, and definitely we would like our fans to experience this. So, in short, it's a wait and see. Yeah. It will be the government, the directives handed down from uh, the powers that be that will determine that. They are optimistic, however, that we will see fans between now and November 10th. But I think it's absolutely right to, to be cautious yeah. about it. The thing is, they don't have to to create an atmosphere of anticipation for tickets. You tell them the day before the game is on, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to be sold out. They don't have to do that. But what they do run the risk of going all the way back to what we were speaking about this evening about badly managed messaging, if they went out there and said, oh, we'd love it, it would be brilliant, yeah, we're pretty certain it's going to happen, blah, 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 and then it doesn't, Think of the crushing yeah. blow it will be to, to people not only here, but people watching all over the world, the players and everything else. I think that was, if I, if I was commsing that from a PR perspective, it's exactly the answer I would give because I think it whets the appetite just the right amount without risking disappointment should it be that, that the situation changes. If I was commsing that, that would be Matt sitting next to Mubishir giving him the <laughs> thumbs up with that particular answer. But what about, and we've seen this over in England with the England West Indies series and the ongoing England Pakistan series, this biosecure bubble where the players are in a hotel, they're being managed closely to ensure that safe passage of these series. Is that something that the powers that be with the IPL will be looking at? And Mubishir had this to say. Definitely. We are uh, working on the same model. Uh, in fact, uh, recently BCCI just updated us uh, with uh, having uh, the same uh, company which uh, is working on England and uh, West Indies and Pakistan, Ristrata. We have them on board right now working with our venues to create that environment. And I think they are also working with BCCI, the franchise teams, to create that bio-bubble environment. And so, and as COVID-19 is a big factor right now, so definitely we would like all this uh, to be sanctioned by the concerned authorities in UAE and then uh, take it forward seamlessly. Yes. Yeah, I was having a conversation a little earlier today and I, I'm not at liberty to reveal, but it's fair to say you will see an awful lot of the leading lights in cricket around various hotels around this town, Mm. some of which I think a little closer to home. So we can expect that. What about, and this was a pertinent question, certainly for Dubai Iron 1, we know the success, the huge success on the field that the IPL has brought, the huge commercial value of it uh, off the field as well. How can the UAE benefit? Definitely, as uh, such a big event like IPL, um, which comes to UAE will d- have an impact, and especially at, at this COVID situation, uh, we are hosting them and uh, giving a boost to our economy. But with the studies which we had uh, for the last time when IPL came with just 20 games, so 
uh, which reflected uh, an economy boost of around like uh, a GDP of 152 million dirhams. So, you know, we are confident and this study was conducted by one of the big force, KPMG. So we are confident to have a better number than what we had last time, considering the number of matches and the tournament size from starting from 20th, uh, from 19th of uh, September to 10th of November. Oh, 152 million dirhams for 20 matches. There's 53 hmm. matches coming. Doing the maths on that, oh, I tell you, a shot in the arm for the economy locally. I'm excited for it. September the 19th, of course, we will have a lot more as we build up to this. Our phones are, are working overtime, trying to secure some exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in cricket. Looking forward to the IPL September the 19th. Just let me add, Chris, away from the, the pure numbers and, and the immediacy of the, the, the impact it will have, just the, the faith that it will put in the country yeah externally to be able to put on events of any kind i think it's so important now people are you and i went to jimmy carr on the weekend <laughs> listen jimmy's not my favorite comedian by any stretch of the imagination but the the boon i felt by seeing a brilliantly run event mm -hmm. in a venue with other people that can reverberate around the world i think it's so important that, that, that this happens that they do it well and, and by the sounds of it everything is in place You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.